0: Everybody likes a feel-good sports movie, right? Predictable plot, maybe a tear or two. There's always that dad who works too much. But what about when a sports movie feels so good that it leads to the creation of an
1: actual professional sports team? We've all probably heard the rule before. You don't wear white after Labor Day. But why? And where did this concept even come from? We'll try to trace the roots of this infamous fashion rule. It's 2005.
0: You and your friends rented a DVD from Blockbuster, God rest your soul, and you pause the movie to get a snack and forget to turn it back on for a bit. Next thing you know, that bouncing DVD logo starts just missing the corners of your television screen. This week, we answer the question, did that logo ever perfectly hit? All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, do you have a favorite comfort food or activity? Like, for some people, they've had a long day, or they're preparing for something kind of stressful, so they resort to eating an entire sleeve of Oreos or a bag of Cheetos. You know, just something to give them a little
1: comfort. So, Jay, what's your comfort food? An entire sleeve of Oreos. Like... Do you know anyone that eats an entire sleeve of Oreos?
0: <laughs> yes, a bunch of people listening to this right now are thinking that's me.
1: I <laughs> uh, yeah, they're like, don't judge me. Okay, um, I I mean, I like to exercise for a comfort activity. Um, I think a lot of people do that. Um, comfort food, I'm big on the dots pretzels. Uh, you know, dots pretzels. If you're listening, like, give us uh, yeah, a sponsorship. Mm-hmm. We'll gladly uh, we'll gladly sponsor you on this show. It's like somebody walked in and. Uh, to the room, and they were like, let's make the perfect snack. Like, don't leave till you've made the perfect snack. And then they came out That's with pretzels. Oh, man, the seasoning. <laughs> Just exquisite. Uh,
0: you know, for me, I, I don't know if I necessarily have one. I, I do find myself night after night, though, going back to the Haribo gummy bears, uh, yeah. somehow we keep buying them. They keep slipping into the cart every week when we go grocery shopping. <laughs> and I just I keep slamming them at night. I'm not necessarily stressed, but it does. I guess it does give me some comfort. Well,
1: maybe it's like a sign of something repressed. I wasn't
0: allowed to have them when I was young. And I'm like, I'll show you. <laughs> now I'm going to eat too many.
1: Like, I've made something of myself, Mom.
0: <laughs> but, Jay, for a lot of us, we find comfort in the predictability of movies, namely sports movies. It's a predictable formula, the sports movie. A team or a coach struggle to get through some sort of hardship to win the big game. And while it's typically kind of mindless entertainment, we all just need that sometimes, right? Well, that's really all anyone expected in the early 1990s from a little Disney movie named The Mighty Ducks. Jay, the movie's plot was about a losing pee-wee hockey team who came together under the guidance of a washed-up former player turned Minnesota defense attorney the infamous Gordon Bombay, played by Emilio Estevez. Is there a better name than Emilio Estevez, by the way?
1: The only <laughs> name better than Emilio Estevez might be Gordon Bombay. <laughs> They're like, how do we outdo the name for his for like his fictional character? Like his real name's too cool. (laughs) Uh, What we got
0: from it, though, Jay, was not just a little throwaway movie.
1: It was something
0: a lot bigger. It didn't take long for Disney to see that it had stumbled onto something very special when the 1992 Mighty Ducks film, made on a $14 million budget, started seeing more and more and more people come in to see it in the theaters. Typically, a movie has a great opening weekend, and then the crowds kind of shrink as its run continues. For the Mighty Ducks, it was the opposite. More people came every single week. Becoming a surprise hit, the movie would quickly go over $50 million, keep in mind in 1992, at the box office and lead to two sequels. The Mighty Ducks movie also did something else, Jay. It led Disney to pursue purchasing an actual professional NHL hockey team. And Jay, the kicker was it would keep the same name. The vision, a shared one between former Disney CEO Michael Eisner and NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman, led to the quick approval of an NHL franchise in Anaheim, California that would actually play professional hockey as the Anaheim Mighty Ducks. This was a perfect opportunity for Disney CEO Michael Eisner and Disney's desire to use this team as a marketing tool to get into an area that has a lot of growth potential, sports writer C.J. Woodline told CBC.com. And at the same time, it matched Gary Bettman's vision to grow into non-traditional markets, a match made in heaven. So to a world mostly filled with skeptics, the Anaheim Mighty Ducks made their NHL debut on October 8, 1993. But while the rest of the league thought that the team was a laughing stock, Disney shamelessly leaned into a brand that quickly became the best-selling merchandise in the entire league. At one point, Jay, it's reported that the Ducks were responsible for 80% of the NHL's then $1 billion in merchandise <laughs> revenue. At times, games felt more like Disney Park attractions than professional sporting events, A 20-minute pregame show that was essentially a Disney on ice performance was accompanied by Disney music and graphics as the game went on. I kid you not, Jay. When people would score goals for the Ducks, the television broadcast would have Tinkerbell come down and a sound effect would go...
1: (laughs) So annoying if you're the opposing team. You're like, we lost to, to the
0: Disney team. And while the team wasn't great out of the gate, accused by many of caring more about the marketing money than the product on the ice... They did start to compete as time went on. In the early 2000s, the Mighty Ducks started making the playoffs, even advancing all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals, before they came up just short against the New Jersey Devils. But Jay, while the ride was fun, it wasn't forever. Disney sold the team after just a decade in 2005, and the Mighty Ducks were rebranded as just the Ducks, as they continue to be today, along with a new color palette and a lot less glitz and glamour. The Ducks actually won, believe it or not, their first and only Stanley Cup the year after the sale. And now the Mighty Ducks uh, branding is used as an alternate revenue stream. So the throwback jerseys, throwback hats, you go to the team's store, tons of Mighty Ducks gear. But regardless, Jay, don't lose the lead here. A Disney movie about a group of kid hockey players was so successful that it led to a real professional sports team being created a story that makes sense but also feels like uh, i don't
1: know a movie script when i think about sports movies especially ones that are ones that we watched as kids i think about something that you told me a long time ago that i've never stopped thinking about which is that when you watch little giants and little giants famously the little giants are of course the protagonists They play against the Cowboys in their last game. It's like the finale of the movie. And uh, you have told me that you, a... Storied uh, Dallas Cowboys fan yourself actually root for the Cowboys when you watch that movie, even though they're clearly the villains. <laughs> they're they're not even sympathetic villains. Like they're like we're gonna crush you, you little twerps. Like they're like you know they're mean. It's like
0: every player on the Cowboys is a bully. But one of my favorite <laughs> scenes from that movie, Ed O'Neill, who I love, is the coach of the Cowboys. And so at the beginning, all the players are trying out for the teams. And of course, the Little Giants are all the scrubs. The Cowboys are all the studs. And so there's a kid that ends up being on the Little Giants, and he, he gets hit and falls down. They take off his helmet. He's got Cheetos in his helmet, like he'd been eating during the, uh, during the tryout. And Ed O'Neill says, Cheetos, crunchy or puffed? And the other coach says, puffed? And he goes, ah, webbed. <laughs> That's all you need to know.
1: So if you're listening to this on the day that it's released, uh, happy Labor Day. Hopefully, you got a day off work today. Uh, if you are listening to this later in the week, uh, you are coming off uh, Labor Day weekend. Hopefully, if you're listening to this after it's released, you are not wearing white because you are breaking a rule, right? Have you ever heard the rule, Dave, that you're not supposed to wear white after Labor Day? I have.
0: It's never made sense to me. So I'm glad you're going to unpack it. I do have a slightly traumatizing experience with this. <laughs> we had a basketball banquet. So this would have been like October at my junior high. And I wore a, I'm like 13 years old i wore a white suit to it I, I like it we're talking awesome. jacket, a white suit yeah
1: pants and one of the older <laughs>
0: players one of the older players looked at me i remember this now i mean, I think how long ago this was he looked at me and he said you're wearing a white suit come on now you dork be better
1: <laughs> <laughs> so he would have been he would have been on the cowboys in the it's little Giants scenario i mean it's a it's a pg insult but it's stung man all these years later <laughs> Well, Dave, the first thing we have to establish with trying to trace the roots of this whole no white after Labor Day thing is that no one is entirely 100% sure where the you can't wear white after Labor Day thing comes from. There are different explanations out there and really no way to totally prove any of them. But there are some pretty good guesses. And the best ones is that it is somewhere rooted in snobbery. Let's go back to post-Civil War America in the late 1800s. During that time, the rich had a stranglehold on society that had been built up over generations. Some families had what you referred to as old money that had been generational and had separated high society from, well, everyone else. But in the decades following the war, more people began breaking into this exclusive club because of the booming of American business and industrialization. This was kind of frustrating to those who had money for generations and felt on some level that they were better than the people who had new money. In response to this, and in an effort to try to weed out who should be in the social circles and who should not, high society women evidently created quite a few fashion rules for people in the loop to follow to help identify who's who. People showing up to events or parties for the wealthy could be much more easily identified since the rules were really arbitrary and then subsequently shunned. Not wearing white outside of summer months seems to be one of those rules, and since Labor Day became an official holiday in 1894 and was sort of adopted as the unofficial end of summer point, the date made the marker a little more visible. Wearing white during the summer was a symbol of wealth naturally as well, because if you were a laborer, wearing white didn't make much sense. Your clothes would get sweaty and dirty. Wearing dark clothes to hide the stains from work made much more sense if you were of a lower class. So as the decades continued into the 1940s and the 1950s, women's magazines continued to perpetuate the rule that white clothing after Labor Day was off-limits if you wanted to follow society's fashion rules. Now today, although you'll hear the concept brought up from time to time, no one really follows it. And if they do, they should know that you're really only following an arbitrary rule created by snobby people over 100 years ago who thought they were better than everyone else. You
0: know, like we've talked about before on the show, if you travel, you go outside of the U.S., there are some weird rules that you just have to know. So there are things that, like, here are not strange. In other countries, they are. And dress code is not immune to that. So, Jay, here are a couple things that, according to Travel Earth, are some dress code rules from around the world, just like the white after Labor Day rule. Okay, so this one would really get you. In Spain... You apparently cannot drive and wear sandals. So you're a big sandal guy, so you'd have to uh, get some closed-toed shoes for when you drive. I don't wear a sock from May until August. Yeah, (laughs) so you'd be in trouble. Uh, In Greece, you cannot wear high heels, apparently, according to Travel Okay. This one would get both of us. uh, So if you are going to swim in France... You are only allowed to wear Speedos as a man. (laughs) So we would really have to
1: psych ourselves up for that. (laughs) My parents uh, took, took me on vacation to the beach or something like that. I don't remember how old I was. I was probably like seven or eight or something. And we went with another family that had a kid that was right around my age. And... They just thought it would be hilarious to like buy a Speedos and have us wear Speedos. So there are a bunch of photos of me that exist somewhere at like Man, age seven. Your
0: parents, also that. on that same
1: trip, they did have me pose with uh, the Hooters girls at Hooters. So it was all about just, you know, getting all the embarrassing photos at once and just collecting them all. Man, you had a rough summer. It was used as a comedy prop that summer for the most part.
0: Jay, we have covered a lot on the run of this show. What's something, or maybe a few things even, that we've covered that you think about a lot or find yourself discussing with others quite frequently? Like, for example, it's probably once a week. I'm not kidding. I bring up the truth about food <laughs> expiration dates with people. Like, one of our past segments revealed that the expiration dates on food aren't actually regulated by anyone. They're set by the companies themselves to highlight when they think their product will taste the best. I'm not kidding. Even in my own household, we talk about that weekly. Like, well, this milk apparently went bad yesterday, but, you know, it's fake. So let's just see if it smells weird. Uh,
1: last year in one of my classes, I, uh, don't, I teach ninth grade, and I don't uh, advertise You know, that I have a podcast or anything like that. But there was a, uh, a kid who said, um, just out of nowhere, like, who owns the moon, Mr. Sisson? Like, what, who, who owns the moon? And in my head, I'm like, I've, I've prepared for this, you know. Uh, and so <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I brought up. The website that we referenced (laughs) when we did a segment on who owns the moon, because there is a man who claims that he owns the moon and he sells arbitrary acres of the moon uh, officially unofficially to people for a lot of money (laughs) and you can buy acreage on the moon. And uh, I'm not kidding when I say that it turned into – I probably wasted 30 minutes with these kids because we had the website up. We were talking about how much it costs, (laughs) like looking at the acreage, uh, trying to figure out like if it was worth it to buy it and everything. And, um, you know, just had all that knowledge – preloaded, ready to go. That's the one class those kids will remember. Like, I had this teacher, I don't remember a thing he said, except he told me who owned the moon.
0: (laughs) But Jay, a topic that's been requested a few times by listeners is a really good one that I think you're going to love because I know you've thought about it, so I'm going to tackle it this week. Does the hypnotic, floating, often color-changing DVD logo ever find its way perfectly into the corner of your TV? So let's start at the ending. Okay, the answer, Jay, is yes. I don't believe you. as we often say, (laughs) it's complicated. Well, we'll see by the (laughs) end whether you believe me or not. Discussed by many, even being featured on an episode of the TV show The Office, in the world before streaming when DVDs were king, the bouncing DVD logo was a cultural thing. Always coming just close enough to be frustrating, the logo felt like it never hit the corner of your TV just right, a feeling that just seems like it would be beyond satisfying if it were to ever happen. Well, the folks at the educational blog, The Lost Math Lessons, decided to dig into the popular question and devised a mathematical equation to try to figure it out. Okay, Jay, this gets heavy, so make sure you pay attention. You ready? (laughs) Here we go. According to the Lost Math Lessons, sure enough, we observe that the logo hits the top and bottom walls at every multiple of 8, and the left and right walls at every multiple of 12. And then the logo hits its first corner at D equals 24, they wrote. This means that the time it takes for a bouncing logo to cycle through one corner to the next can be calculated with five variables. The time it takes for it to move across one width of the screen, the screen height, the screen width, the logo height, and the logo width. We can calculate that it takes six seconds for the bouncing DVD logo to go from one width of the screen. And if the TV screen is 800 by 600 pixels, the logo is about 140 by 140 pixels. In other words, the DVD logo will hit a corner of the television screen every two minutes and 18 seconds, depending on the variant
1: size of the TV. So are you telling me that it is always related to the size of the TV. Like, the TV has to be a specific size for that to happen. I'll go on.
0: (laughs) The bouncing logo, Jay, may be less in the conversation today, with less DVDs being used, but it still remains an obsession for many. For example, on YouTube, the site Flare TV began live streaming a bouncing DVD logo in January of 2019 and let the broadcast run for an entire year. The many, many fans of the video report that a corner DVD hit happens every 500 to 600 wall hits, or approximately every 550 bounces. Seems to indicate, Jay, it doesn't really matter the size of the screen or the logo. (laughs) But just as wild is the website BouncingDVDLogo.com, an entire website dedicated to the iconic graphic. The videos on the site, Jay, rack up millions and millions of views every year. And fun debate aside, (laughs) the bouncing logo did and does serve a purpose. While it doesn't happen as easily with modern televisions, older models were prone to what's called screen burn. Meaning if the DVD logo just sat in the middle of the screen for hours and hours while you ate your chicken nuggets and you didn't turn off your TV, you'd have the mark there forever kind of like my buddy's parents tv i hated watching tv at their house because cnn was burnt into the corner <laughs> in the right side
1: of the tv
0: <laughs> so there you have it you got the research
1: are you a believer uh i guess i still feel like i need to observe it to fully commit to it and not a youtube video like i need to see it in the wild okay so it says it takes uh, every 500 to 600 wall
0: hits so get yourself a snack and uh, <laughs> just sit down for a while, see
1: what happens. Yeah, clear my schedule. I'm going to be down here for a while. Yeah, the um, there's a famous video. Uh, we've talked about uh, the mascot of the Philadelphia Flyers before on here, Gritty, and uh, there's a famous video that's something that they do. Uh, where he will run into the crowd and people will string out a huge like four like rectangular strings to make it look like a box and he'll hold the dvd logo on a pole and he'll bounce he'll just slowly move it around like it's bouncing and just constantly tease the audience with that it's going to go into the corner and when he goes into the corner man the whole place goes wild like they don't even know they're at a hockey game anymore they don't even care (laughs) they're not even watching the game like the whole crowd is super invested in this dvd logo going into the corner (laughs)
0: And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out on Facebook, X, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, CommuteThePodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For JSIS, and I'm Dave Traub. See you next week. You know, speaking of Cheetos... Uh, talking about comfort foods. So when I was a kid, <laughs> I don't know if I ever told you this before. <laughs> when I was a kid, um, I, I loved Cheetos. Like I was always, I guess that's why my son loves Cheetos now, now that I think about it. He's yeah, always asking for genetics Cheetos. Genetics
1: are very strong.
0: Yeah, genetics it is. So my mom would always like tell me, don't eat too many. Like... Constantly, don't eat too many. And I started to eat more and more and more. And <laughs> one, <course>. specific, <laughs> one specific time, she said, now, this is the last time I'm going to let you have the bag if you eat too many Cheetos. So what I do, I ate the entire bag. And wow. that, night, that night, I threw up all over yeah. my room. Uh, including on all my clean clothes, because I used to
1: not put my clothes in the drawers. So they did your just mom like the floor. take care of you? Because if she did, she's stronger than me. Because I would have just been like gloating over you all evening. Put it this way: this is a but. this is a
0: family show. <laughs> and when I woke her up in the middle of the night to tell her what had happened, I can't. That's all I can say. I can't say anything else. That was, <laughs> that, was uh, that
1: went on. <laughs> now, have you caught yourself saying the same thing to your own son? Like you can't have the bag because you eat too yeah. many and just feeling have, like man life really is a I'm circle you,
0: I I didn't realize it until this moment <laughs> but oh.
1: you know who i have to blame the man in the mirror